Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Yes. Hello. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com. Nestled, yes, nestled, in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. Following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. You're still, uh, you're still nestling. I'm, oh boy, I'll tell you. I, you know, I, I, I think we're more sloshing than nestling. You think so? Sloshing? Yeah. I think you should step on my That's line. That's a competition of the Olympics. Is this sloshing? Yes. yes, I've got a gold medal in sloshing. I believe that you do. <laughs> yeah. I have a gold medal in recalcitrance. In what? Recalcitrant. Too big a word for me. I have a silver in consummationness. Um, even bigger. Yeah. I think I think he's more obstreperous than anything else. Yeah, I had an obstreperous throat, but he gave me some penicillin. You remember penicillin, don't you? Yeah, she was. <laughs> she was wonderful. This was the plaster you, casters. Stop doing that. Okay. Okay. Where were we? Oh, yeah, we were in our secret bunker. We we're still in our secret bunker, and I'm trying to protect our <laughs> audience from a very ill sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, that's Howard Lapidus, manager to the star. It's Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, who's... Didn't check any facts. Who's uh, watching uh, how the West was won or something. On <laughs> 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 his little phone there. What are, what are you watching? He's, he's watching the football game, which... Uh, no, you know, he's not. It, it, he's watching Blade 4. I am no, Wesley Snipes. I am close to, you know, the biggest football fan <laughs> in Outlaw Radio. In fact, I am. That wasn't Mark Boyer. And we're in the middle of the playoffs now. There's a playoff game going on, right? To, He's you not know, watching so any playoffs. I, I know, but uh, I am. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not. The point is, is I'm not watching the playoffs. I'm here with our audience and you, Burrow, and Mark. Well, I thought we were going to interrupt us to show Heidi. What? Oh God! <laughs> 1969. Yay! Very good. Okay. Very good. Uh, that's a callback for you. In reference to a, uh, a football game on NBC between New York Jets and, and the, Raiders. the Raiders. Right. And it was down to the last minute or two. Right. And the Raiders, I think, were leading. Or the no, they were, they were trailing. They scored two touchdowns in less than, in less than a minute. But NBC said, yeah, you know, uh, it's this, time for this Heidi. Game, this game, this game's lost. <laughs> we got to go to Heidi. We don't want to screw up our, our nighttime schedule. And sure enough, lo and behold, Two, two scores later, whatever it was, the, the, other, the Raiders. Uh, so uh, there was nothing but an outcry, oh, an outpouring you, of football fans. Yeah, they haven't found Heidi's body yet. <laughs> yeah, well, the next week. I think she's next to Pippi in her long stock. Yeah, yeah, that right. next, very shortly thereafter, uh, the National Football League and the networks said that we played the games until the end and we, whatever, if it runs over, too bad. Yeah. yeah do we runs over guess? Heidi. Mr. Pearl there. What's yes. that? Do we have a guest? Yeah. We have oh, a guest. You, know, you want to move to the show? It's, no. it's a guest who's a, such a good friend of the show. He, he, uh, he likes this banter. Come on. Yeah. All oh, right. Are we, are we famous again? Frank C. Gerardo Jr. Oh. He's famous. Hey there. Hey, Frank. How you doing? No, he's infamous. Hey, great. You know. I'm uh, enjoying the football game from the confines <laughs> of my own secret bunker. Uh, now maybe and, you were um, watching Heidi. <laughs> I'm earning my degree and getting sloshed. Uh, you you go. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, what's your libation of choice, Mr. Gerardo? That would be uh, a beer. For, any for now, any particular uh, brand you want to? Beer before, uh, let's not go. Look, look at brands. What, how's that go? Wine before beer in the clear, beer before liquor, never sicker. I'm, I'm going for never sicker. 
Okay. Yeah. Liquor in the front, poker in the rear. So what you're saying is you're not going to see the end of this game. <laughs> well, I mean, it's already over. So. Yeah, I, well, it seems to me that I, I heard the score, and, and no need for us to repeat it because... Right. Uh, but uh, for crying out loud, anything can still happen. Yes. That's what just, like, just ask Heidi. Yeah. That's it. We just went through the whole Heidi thing. There's there only go. two only two people in Southern California that even knows what we're talking about, and that's Barlow. <laughs> and I know you know. Yeah, uh, in fact, that, that game made my dad into a Raiders fan, lifelong Raiders fan. Well, I'm, so, I'm sorry I, to hear that, that you're the offspring of a lifelong Raiders fan. But, yeah, well. And, and, you're, you and, and yeah. Who, who are you a fan of? The Detroit Lions, which is even more pathetic. Well, you got there before I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're talking to yeah, a Buffalo I had to. I, I know what I know what follows that. Now Buffalo made it to the Super Bowl four years in a row That's and came within a field goal of winning. And uh, on that was the Whitney Houston national anthem game. Um, well, you're a thousand percent right, and you didn't want to see me as that that kick uh, from Scott Norwood went wide right. But we're, 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 if I hear the words "wide right" and it's twenty some odd years later, it, it still gives me the show. Why don't we? We should we should start talking about. Um, ah, no, let's keep talking about football. No, I'm that's good. not for, en for for entertainment purposes only. That's right. what I always say. Yep, yeah. yep, that's right. Medicinal purposes. Yeah. So tell us, yeah. how did a respectable young man such as yourself, who's not from the West Coast, how did you wind up here, and how did you wind up in the business of true crime? Oh, Burl, that's such a long story. Well, but that's I, good. I, we I got an hour. I came, I came, I, yep, we got an hour. That's great. I came to college at UCSD, um, and, uh, it, which is you know south of Los Angeles, but I just love the area so much that I uh, decided to stay. And, I, and it was a really good year uh, to stay. Um, when I made that decision in 1984, you know, the Olympics were here and L.A. was kind of the center of the universe. And um, really, I think all of our modern history about Los Angeles kind of starts in that year. So, um, yeah, that's why I stayed. I stayed because L.A. was cool and it's uh, even cooler now. It's 40 degrees outside. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> now, uh, I'm going to slip back to football for two seconds, okay? Uh, sure. Frank, Frank, who is? do you have a team of choice in L.A.? I know, I know, um, I know. Your your lions come first. I get that. I know. Understand yeah. fan, fandom, but uh, you're in L.A. Has has a team in L.A. struck your fancy even out of the corner of your eye? Well, the Raiders, for sure. <laughs> but since they're not here anymore, um, it, I, I'll tell you. Speaking about that year that I I um, decided to move here, it was the year the Raiders won the Super Bowl over the Washington Redskins, and uh, I saw. Um, what was one of my first pro football games at the L.A. Coliseum. Uh, the Raiders were playing the Pittsburgh Steelers, and there was 100,000 people in the stadium. Uh, we got tickets, we walked up and got tickets, and it was just this phenomenal, great game. Uh, and the thing that I, I remember most, though, about the game is when we were parking, there, you know, there's no parking lot for the Coliseum, so you drive through neighborhoods and this guy said, hey, I've got a parking spot right here. Come on, come on and park on my front lawn. It's only $5. Hey, great, no problem. Here's five bucks. He goes, oh, by the way, but it's going to cost you another 15 for insurance. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, that's cheap insurance in that neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially then. Yep. So, so you got a good yeah, deal. You drive, you drive into the Coliseum uh, in, in that area now and want to park the car for a Rams game, 100 bucks to get as close as you need to get to the same $100 to park the car. 
50 bucks for a hot dog. It's ridiculous. I mean, I think I probably, if I had to pick between the two, gosh, I like watch, I love watching the Rams, um, but I just like the scrappiness of the Chargers, too. Um, well, well we're, we're, we're both on the same page, and then we're going to get to true crime in a second, but I'm a big McVeigh fan. I like him, and uh, good luck to them. Anyway, yep. we're back. Burl, yeah. okay. what's your next question? My next question is, what's the capital of Ecuador? Uh, Quito. You're right for 25 points. Later, we'll move on into the lightning round. See if you get hit. All right. Uh, you did not Great. frame that in the form of a question. I'm sorry. I, yes, thanks, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what happens when Alex Trebek finally uh, takes advantage of his pen insurance? <laughs> uh, yeah, he's 76 years old, almost 77. Well, he's almost as old yeah. as Bob Dylan. Uh, well, please. I, I'd like to see Bob Dylan host that show. I'd like to see Alex Trebek sing Bob Dylan's greatest hits. <laughs> too, too he could probably do a better job. No, no, not the last time I saw Dylan. It was great. That was only, what, two years ago. It's amazing. Whatever drug he's on, he should just stay on it now. <laughs> yep. No, no. Hey, look, he's been good since 63. Trust me. Anyway, back to, uh, you know, why don't we just not talk about uh, true crime? <laughs> just talk about Bob uh, Dylan. Frank, Frank's an interesting it's, guy. It's, I, I it's, can... it's, it's all related. It's all related, right? I, I can actually, if I, uh, after I finish a couple of beers, maybe I'll do my Dylan impression for you. Oh, you do a Dylan impression? We well, see, we're going to hold yes. you to that, Frank. <laughs> All right. Okay. Man, oh man, oh man, what's happened to true crime today? It's it's actually got yeah. entertaining. It's, it's all it's it's, it's all it's, it's it's all related. I'm telling you, it's all. Dylan may have even sung at one point. See, you know, actually, you know what? Hurricane. It, I I love Hurricane and not be, you know and it's the story right but it's really it's like journalism to me like if you really like you really listen to what you know the, the what Bob Dylan is singing in that song and you you know the whole story and you listen to it again and again and again and the way that he frames the different voices and you know the whole you know downfall of Hurricane Reuben Carr Reuben Hurricane Carr it, it, I mean. It is truly one of the most magnificent uh, pieces of journalism, I think, in our uh, in our language. Uh, and by the way, I, I never looked at it as a piece of journalism, but now I totally agree. You know, you're right. And, and, he had to run it by a bunch of lawyers to see who was going to sue who when he put the song well, yeah, out. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they did that, and I'll bet that the, they did the same thing with the Lonesome Death of Hattie McCarroll, which yeah. is another great sort of you know, Dylan-esque telling of a story in a journalistic style. Um, yeah. And you can tell I'm a big Dylan fan. Yeah, me too. Me three? Me four? <laughs> Great. I have cool. seen him when he was so good, your jaw dropped, and I have seen him when he, when he was phoning it in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you just go, why, why is he here? You know, he just gets up, that's a song, boom, gone. And then I've seen him. Really, yeah. And then I've seen him like at the, when I saw him at the Dolby a couple of years ago. He sold every single lyric, every nuance of every song. It was wow. Absolutely fabulous. He's, he's Bob Dylan. That's because he's Bob Dylan. Yeah, you know, friends of ours. Friends of ours live in Calabasas, and um, uh, their kids were in school out there. And they went to parent-teacher night, and there's this old man in the back, and he's kind of shuffling around, making noise. And they looked at him again and again and again. They see he looks familiar. And damn it, if it wasn't Bob Dylan. No. Oh wow. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. But one of his kids uh, went to one of these things where they had at other people's houses. The kids all go play. Yeah. 
and Dylan is there, and he's got like a hoodie on <laughs> and big round glasses, like to, no one's going to know who he is. But yeah, it's just like, the, don't pay attention. Don't pay attention to me. I'm an old guy wearing a hoodie and big round sunglasses. Yeah, <laughs> but it's just the parents of the other kids. And so everybody knows who everybody is. <laughs> so he kind of shuffles into the kitchen to get a cookie. And someone says, you know, you look like a giant bug. He says, I am. <laughs> 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 I am. See, now Dan's a fan. He can't be having this much fun in the no, first 20 no, minutes. He's way too serious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's still recovering from getting married. And he always will be. Boy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good line. Yeah, I know. Uh, Dan Zapanski got married, so did Frank Gerardo. Yes, sir. Why? Yes, I did. He has a, he has a wife. That's, that's right, I do. She's a great journalist in her own right. She's all over the L.A. strike, that's the teacher strike that's about to happen. Oh, is that her uh, beat? Oh, God. Yeah, what a mess. Well, but remind she, him... She, she, as the former president of AFTRA said, there's never a strike unless management wants it. <laughs> well, that's true. I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like there's never a wall or something, right? I mean, I look at the intractability of everybody these days as being, you know, yeah. direct. Yeah. What was that great uh, clip I put of John F. Kennedy, where he said about democracy, we don't build walls to keep our people from leaving. <laughs> yeah. You go, oh, yeah. is that what it's about? It <laughs> <laughs> is. That is what yeah. most of those walls were about. Yeah. You never know. Try and get out of East Germany back in the day. Yeah, it wasn't easy. <clears throat> no, it, no, it, it I, wasn't. No, you had that uh, landmine uh, strip between the two, the two walls. Maybe you ought to smoke a landmine strip. I was just <laughs> No, I've had enough drugs for the last three weeks. Yes, you have. Yeah, you, Mark C.G. Boyer not feeling well for the 90th week in a row. And, hey, and, I got a shot in my spine yesterday. I feel much better. H hang on, Frank. Why did you get a shot in your spine? Because that's why I always get a shot. Poor qua. Poor pain. Yeah, I know. So, but now, after the pain went from 10 to a 1.5. Yeah. Yeah, but with I, the bullets. I, I like those shots. <laughs> They're yeah. great. Yep. They put you out a little bit? No, no. They just give me shots that took us so it won't hurt so much when they give me the big one. Okay. <laughs> At least I think that's what he gave me. <laughs> well, were both of his hands on your shoulders? <laughs> yes, he was a nurse, too. Oh, man. They were stacked like cordwood. Oh, Mark C.G. Boyer, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so there you that's were, minding your own business, Frank. And that, I mean, that just sounds like a story straight out of Porn Valley. I, I, <laughs> I, I think I've seen that. Yeah, that, just that go to Van Nuys. What I like about the one thing I really like about watching porn in L.A. is you know every neighborhood they're in because they film them all in Van Nuys. Or Woodland Hills. Or Woodland Hills. Uh, uh, and Cena also. <laughs> yeah. You go, oh, look, there's Matt's house. <laughs> oh, look. <laughs> we had a, uh, a, a film crew look at our house. Yeah? Yeah. And they just didn't have enough money to give me to do that in my house. Uh, that's too bad. Yeah, well, what can I tell you? Yeah, well. Next time. Next time. <laughs> Bachelor of Paradise, filmed at Howard's house. Yeah. <laughs> trying to sell the damn place. Come on. Well, lots of luck on that. Yep. <clears throat> Going to drop the price down to semi-reasonable. Nope. Nope. <laughs> Not in this town. Nope. <laughs> you could move your, move your house to Las Vegas. You can sell it there. Uh, I'll move it back to Buffalo. 
Well, then you could really. And that would be the king of all kings. Oh yeah. My house in Walla Walla, Washington. My house in Walla Walla, Washington. If it had been elsewhere, it would have been worth a lot of money. <laughs> Here's the bad news. Yeah. It wasn't elsewhere. If only, if, if only it had been in Venice, right? Yeah. There you go. So meanwhile, Frank C. Gerardo Jr. comes out here, discovers he, he can park on someone's lawn <laughs> for a great for five deal. Bucks. Yeah. And fifteen dollars insurance. And says, boy, I want to live here. Because <laughs> you can't do this where I come yes, from. Yes, sir. But how did you That's get right. into the whole journalism crime <laughs> thing? Did you So I, I I'm in the late eighties I worked at a paper in downtown LA called the Herald Examiner. Oh and um I worked the night shift in our um, our paper was right um, at 11th and Broadway. And if you know downtown LA, that's in the heart of the um, fashion district. Yep. But it was also at a time when there was an explosion of you know gang violence throughout Los Angeles. And um, you know every night uh, it, we'd look at the wires, it, and it, these were ticker tape machines back then. <laughs> and you'd see you know. Five, six, seven, sometimes eleven murders happen in 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 you know the span of a few hours, and um, you had to make these decisions. You know, the editor would make decisions like, are we going to cover this? Is it worthy of covering? Do we write about something else? And the you know the whole cops and robbers thing for you know say eighty eight until ninety three here was just you know the right place at the right time. Uh, and, you know, the um, Los Angeles Police Department, the Rodney King beating, the, the unrest that followed the not guilty verdicts for those cops. Uh, you know, these, these were great times to be covering crime. And then, you know, you, you go from that to OJ. Uh, you know, I covered the murder and the trial uh, partially. And so, you know, it just became kind of part of my DNA as a journalist to be, you know, really familiar with, um, public, I don't know, I, we'll just call it the administration of justice or the justice system in Los Angeles. And, well, that's uh, a you know, pretty tricky the, thing to name. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, it's um, like, is there so a system of justice or is there a system of courts? Well, I mean, there's really no, I mean, it, there's, first of all, I mean, justice is, it, it, does, it really doesn't exist, I guess, as we want to think about it, right? But there is a court system, you know, that everything feeds into. You know, the cops feed to the DA, the DA feeds to the, you know, uh, preliminary hearing before a judge, a judge calls a jury, a jury hears a case. There's politics all along the way, and demography, and race, and, you know, police and, and regular Joe citizens, it's all like kind of there in the courtroom. And really, that's where the best and greatest stories are. And coming out of that era, um, you, there was just, I mean, wild, wild things that happened. Um, you know, O.J., uh, certainly the one that everybody knows, but there was some, there was, I remember a case where these two guys, one of them was named Jason Mency, and I can't remember what, what his partner's name was. But they would, you know, these guys would break into houses in the wealthiest neighborhoods. They didn't care if people were home or not home. Um, they'd ransack their stuff. They'd beat the hell out of them a couple of times. They, you know, killed people. And when they were on trial, the options were, uh, you know, the death penalty or 
uh, I think for one of the guys, a 675-year sentence in state prison. Any time off for good behavior. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of time off for good behavior. And, yeah, why, um, why, do they, why do they bother taking it up to that many years because it's ridiculous? They just say, it, it, at 100, we'll let you go. Yeah, I think at 80. I mean, yeah. 50. Yeah, okay. I, my, you know, or 10 even in my case. <laughs> but, uh, so what happened um, with these guys? Well, I'm, you know, these two guys, um, they were convicted, and they ended up getting, I think one of them got 475 years, the other one got 500 and something. And, you know, they're, to this day, they're in state prison. And the stuff that they did was, you know, I mean, just a, an accumulation of, like, a carjacking, a break-in, an armed robbery, a shooting. Um, and then you've got, you know, this charge sheet with, you know, 70 or 80 crimes on it. Um, and there was a, that stuff happened all over LA um, in in those years, and it kind of, you know you don't this kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore for a variety of reasons. You know, I was thinking about the other day, people don't carry as much cash as they used to carry. Um, your cell phone has a GPS tracker on it. Um, anything. In fact, I was reading a story the other day about a guy who you know strong arm robbed a woman of her cell phone and uh you know the woman goes home calls the police and then goes on her ipad and oh there's my cell phone at a coffee shop in claremont and they go and arrest the guy uh, you know <laughs> you're not going to have those kind of sentences anymore because these guys get picked up pretty pretty quick turns out he was he was charged with being in a coffee shop in yeah, paramount right. yeah and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway. so let's go back to, uh, you know, O.J. aside, and by the way, I ran into O.J. about two weeks ago. And oh, yeah? F- believe it or not, you know what he told me? He says, I did not do it. So, well, uh, yeah. Surprise, um, surprise. Yeah. I mean, this, this is, you know what, we're in, right now we're in an exoneration culture. You know, all these shows like Stephen Avery and uh, there's another one on Netflix. Uh, I can't, I think it's called The Innocent Man. It's a John Grissom story that's been turned into like a multi-part series. So, I mean, why not, O.J.? Let's, let's exonerate O.J. once and for all. Yeah, I, I, that. I'd like to see him mingling with all the people, except, uh, you know, outside of Florida and Nevada. That would be good. Yeah. We need that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sure we do. Anyway, um, where was I going with that? I, Shoot me I don't, in the head. I don't, you were going to talk I wanna, about no, I wanna know, what, Yeah, I want to know about the crimes, that, uh, aside from the big ones that, that we all kind of know. What fat, is there a crime that just, took you to another place and fascinated you by, beyond belief and and you just you know you did your beat on it and that was it you didn't write a book or whatever whatever yeah I did, yeah um thank you that's a good question so um uh, pasadena you think of it as kind of this you know lovely place where the rose bowl is and they all these you know kind of gentrified folk that live here but there's a, you know, there's a, a, a bit of a part of the neighborhood that was traditionally segregated, um, and uh, you know, largely African American in the early '90s. And um, there were two pretty vicious sets of Bloods and Crips who were constantly at war with each other. In Pasadena. In Pasadena. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the Bloods gang was the Pasadena Denver Lanes, and the Crips were the Raymond Avenue Crips. So, uh, so these guys were at war and they were killing each other all the time. And there was a shooting uh, that happened 
in the early hours, uh, let's say around four o'clock on Halloween uh, in 1993, um, the guy named, I want to say his name was Fernando Liggins, got shot, took him over to the Huntington Memorial Hospital, and uh, he died. And his homies, uh, members of the Pasadena Denver Lanes, decided that they were going to go out and get revenge on the Raymond Avenue Crips. So they, you know, they get they get strapped. They go driving around Pasadena. It's about eight nine o'clock at night, and they come across a, a group of guys wearing bandanas, um, and they decide that they're going to go up and wait for these guys as they're walking up the street. So they get out of the the, the Bloods gang members Herbert McLean, Lorenzo Newborn, and Carl Holmes uh, get out of the car. They wait for these guys in the bandanas to come up the street, and when they get within a couple of feet, they start blasting. Well, they shot six people, killed three. Uh, three others were severely injured, and they were all kids between the ages of 11 and 13 who were out oh trick-or-treating. Man, oh, man. Oh, man. And... Um, the bandanas that they were wearing was because a group of them wanted to be pirates. So that was their Halloween costume. Yeah, yep. And they were they were walking up the street, trick or treating, uh, heading toward one of their mother's homes, who lived three doors down from where the shooting took place. Oh God. She she was the first person on the scene, and uh, she came across her son, who you know was dead in the street. Uh, walk down a few blocks farther, a few feet farther, and there's that boy's twin who's been shot. And a couple feet farther is their best friend who's, you know, shot dead and trying to knock, you know, had died on the steps of a house just hoping to get away. Um, so this was a, this, as you can imagine, in Pasadena, right? This, this was kind of like a shock. Yeah, even, year, even, I mean, even today, for me, that's a shock for Pasadena. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but in that year, there were, you know, 30 other homicides that took place in Pasadena. And, you know, every time there was a shooting, the local preachers would go down to City Hall and hold a little rally, and nothing, you know, nothing ever came of it These uh, at, at that time. The Denver Lanes and the Crips, they were at each other constantly. So when these kids got shot, the community came together and really, you know, started to examine itself and its history of segregation and, you know, sort of institutional racism. Um, this, by the way, believe it or not, this happened in 93, and the genesis of this year's Rose Parade, which had the first black grand marshal, was because of that shooting in 93. Uh, that's that's how long it takes things to change in Pasadena. Um, the police, uh, so so the shooting happens. These guys get away and they're gone. They're in the wind. Um, one went up to Tulare. One went to Walla Walla, Washington, and another one uh, I can't remember where he hid out. But they were they were hiding out, and none none of their associates, people who knew, by the way, what happened would turn them in and uh 
it took almost, I want to say, three or four months for the police to, like, really kind of figure out who did it and then track them, track these guys down and then bring them to court. And um, so they did. They were, they were tried three years after the crime. Uh, the trial, the, the death penalty phase of the trial culminated on Halloween night, 1996. And uh, uh, Herbert McLean, Lorenzo Newborn, and Carl Holmes were all given the, the death penalty. And they're on St. Quentin, you know, they're on death row in St. Quentin today. Um, the, the families, uh, you know, who lost their children in this shooting, you know, I mean, to the, it, they're still around town, and there's, you know, there's still, still a huge gaping scar. Uh, in their neighborhood and in their lives. And, I, you know, I mean, it would be a really, so, you you know, when you started this out and I started telling you about it, it would be a really interesting thing to write about um, because of the, you know, the history of Pasadena and the shocking factor of it. Um, but it's, it, it uh, there's it's just, just this, um, I guess like okay, this whole idea of well, let's move past that and into um, something else that it makes it hard for people to talk about it. I've got reams and reams of notes on the on that story though, and it it kind of reminded me just now talking about it about another case, um, not quite from that era, but but in a similar vein. Um, you know, the Tournament of Roses is this kind of entity that dominates a lot of the social life in Pasadena. And um, that's because they put on that annual New Year's parade and the football game. So there was a, a, a woman who's very closely affiliated with the Tournament of Roses who disappeared and turned up dead in the trunk of her car like you know, six months later. So for years, the cops tried to figure out, like, you know, what happened to her? How'd she die? You know, um, and they finally figured out it was this guy who was also in the Tournament of Roses. So they, they go to his house and they arrest him and, you know, it causes a huge uproar in the community. How dare you arrest this man, this upstanding gentleman? He wouldn't kill this woman and put her in the trunk. And um, I guess we'll never really know who was right, the cops or the people that stood by this guy, because within a, a month of his arrest, he was released, and a month later he was dead of a heart attack but it's one of those things where you just like man if you could like really like this little small town america right here in la if you could just dig into the dark underbelly of it I th well i think you're right i mean you, you've got two stories in a row here that were fascinating and um burl bear by the way is about 60 pages in on the first story <laughs> good for burl i've been typing like a madman <laughs> good burl <laughs> <laughs> I can count on you. Yeah. Are you going to do do a book on this one? I mean, it sounds like you've got this one down, the first story. I, I, I mean, I, I, like I say, I thought about it. I, you know, it's so long ago. It happened a long time ago, uh, 93. So it seems like it's kind of, you know. Yeah, but a story is a, a good story is a good story. It doesn't matter. Yeah, that's true. Race relations. You know, you know, what, you know what the good story would be, really, is to, like, take that and serialize it for one of these Netflix shows. 
Um, hey, hang on. I, I've, got, I mean, I've, got, I've got to make a quick call. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Okay. But, I mean, I, I really think that's the future of that kind of storytelling, you know, is, is you know, bringing all the people together, go get the video clips from that era because there's lots of good ones. There's some really good ones from court. These guys were real thugs. And, you know, tell the story of the dark underbelly of this community, five episodes. Was make, on making, and making of a murder was that one on Netflix that really kicked that off for them. Uh, yep. And uh, and now the people are lining up trying to do these stories with Netflix, and it's happening uh, because yeah. there's so many good stories well, out there and, and qualified people to uh, to tell them. Just another guy that was just released on the Innocence Project, 37 years on death row. Yeah. 37, well, I don't know if it's death row, but 37 years in prison for rape and armed robbery, and he, he wasn't the guy. But 37 years of his life, there's no way you can pay anybody enough you, 37 no, years you, of their life. You really can't. Now, and, you know, it, with the, the Stephen Avery story, where, you know, there's no, you know, just as he's about to get paid, suddenly he's arrested again. Wow. I thought How that, did that was, happen? Yeah, well, that's what I was with Michael Griesbach, because the prosecutor was on the show. And we had a little disagreement about that. I said, yeah. you, you agree, Michael, that the first time around he was set up. He was innocent, totally innocent. I said, second time around, isn't it amazing that just as he's about to get a check for $34 million, suddenly he's arrested, and they find this key to her car, They've searched his, his room, you know, a hundred times. Oh, gee, suddenly we find the key uh, on the floor. <laughs> yeah, I, right? Yeah, suddenly. After how many times do they search the place? Well, don't forget the bullet hole in the garage, right? On the garage floor. And the, but, you know, the story, the, the thing is, is that that poor kid, Brandon Dassey, uh, I mean, this is, truthfully, in a lot of these exoneration things, it's the, you know, it's the... Um, Oh, what's it? I don't. I want to just say this in a politically correct way, but I know I'm not going to be able to. No, it's the don't, idiot. Don't, don't just say it, it. You know, it's it's the idiot that that you know, uh, uh, like Brendan Dassey, who, you know, ends up not understanding the the how much he, trouble he's going to be in. It's not really getting the whole process and just saying stuff because he wants to please people in authority. And you look at every one of those. Exoneration cases. There's an element of, idiocracy. I guess, the, of the idiot. Yeah, the idiot. Right, idiocracy. There's a, there's a great. This is a real tangent, but there is a great philosophy. Uh, this Italian guy, uh, Italian professor, said, you know, um, there's more stupid people in the world than you think there are, and whatever your estimate of stupid people are, it's going to be your low ball because there's there's stupid people everywhere. And, and the thing you got to do is figure out, like, how do you navigate a world that's essentially run by stupid people? I've seen that. I watch the news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. So. The tragedy is was, we could be some of those stupid people. We don't well, know. Well, we could. Yeah, we could be. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing, right? Because you're all, cause part of this philosophy is you underestimate, uh, you know. But I don't think so. No, I, I mean, think if you're if you're no. smart enough to wonder about it, you're probably not one of them. But <laughs> but the, the, it go. is true. I'm amazed with gas and thunderstruck uh, at the ridiculousness and overwhelming uh, idiocracy of of human beings. Uh, 
and it, it doesn't cross their mind. I've, had, I've talked to people, Earth's hollow, you know. And then, <laughs> how did they get that film crew on the moon? <laughs> well, I, I don't know, because the world's flat. Yeah. <laughs> did, that, did that fella ever get his balloon off the ground? But the guy, the guy there was a, a flat earther who was going to yeah, fly guy was his prove balloon it, right? to prove the earth was still was flat. Yeah. One of the big proponents oh. of that is that actually an airline pilot, in order to fly the plane, you have to take into account the curvature of the earth. I was wondering how he reconciled being a pilot and being a flat earther. But, uh, hey, so I'm so many, you know what? That reminds me of a John Brody story. Yeah. John, John Brody, the quarterback for the, uh, the San Francisco 49ers and noted Scientologist. Mm. And um, which, by the way, I don't know if you guys know this, Scientology got its start in Pasadena. Yeah, yeah. Um, the reason to avoid it like the plague. <laughs> yeah. So, but anyway, uh, so John Brody was a Scientologist quarterback. <laughs> and uh, he was asked after, after a particular game how he completed you know, a 50-yard pass to Gene Washington. And he said, he told him, he said, well, you know, I've, I've taken this course in Dianetics, and I can now see the curvature of the earth between me and the goal line. So I'm able to throw the pass in such a way that it takes that into account. Hey, Frank. All right. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, check, please. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, okay. maybe it was astigmatism he was taking into account. <laughs> Man, okay, you guys man, are really man, 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 man. We're getting pretty so, severe. But uh, people are crazy. Yep, yeah, exactly. Well, and in fact, it's why, really why you had me on here is to talk about a crazy guy that that uh, I, I wrote about. Um, also operating in that kind of era, uh, the late 80s and the early 90s, and his name is John Orr. And um, I, I, well, with his daughter, Lori Kovac, uh, wrote a book about him. It's called Burn. And um, it's on sale now, Wild Blue Press. Um, Lori and I are going to be at Broman's Bookstore in Pasadena uh, this coming Friday at 7 p.m. to talk about it. But I'll careful give you a little preview. It, careful where you park the car. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah Pasadena. So, um, Broman's one of the remaining books, last remaining independent bookstores. Yes, and I'm very, I'm really, really proud that they, you know, happy, pleased uh, that they asked us to come there and talk about it, because um, it's been, you know, it's difficult sometimes to get them to uh, uh, to fit us little guys in the mix with, you know, they had Michelle, they've had, you know, they sponsored Michelle Obama, they had Hillary Clinton there, they had big, big people there, so it's cool to go there. Um, we're going to talk about Byrne and about John Orr. John Orr. Um, was a Glendale fire captain and the most respected authority on arson investigations in the United States. And John Orr was also the most prolific serial arsonist of the 20th century. <laughs> so you got the guy that, uh, you know, the fox guarding the hen house sort of thing. Um, the, the book is really about... Um, about Lori, uh, his daughter, and her belief that, that, you know, there was no way in hell that her dad a hero, who, by the way, was seen by everybody as a hero. I talked to a judge um, who told me that when John Orr came into court and testified in a case, he was, he was 
so believable and followed and the way that he presented his testimony that this judge thought, man, if he could give a class to every cop on how to sit on the stand and how to give his testimony, the world would be a great place. Um, he, he also, you know, he was so well-respected, he could go into TV studios and ask for footage of uh, stuff that they had that may have taken place around or near a fire, um, and they would just give it to him. Um, so Lori saw her dad as being this hero, this, this arson-investigating hero. And um, he gets arrested and charged with four murders in connection with an arson fire that took place in 1984. And there's a trial, and he's tried for the murders, and he's tried for one of those great California wildfires like we had this past fall. Um, This one happened in Glendale, California. It destroyed 40 homes and, and, I mean, literally destroyed 40 homes and damaged 60 others. So this guy was a dangerous man. Uh, fortunately, you know, he was convicted. And um, when there was an opportunity for him to be put to death, because that was one of the options, his daughter came and spoke on his behalf, and her testimony was so compelling uh, about her hero dad that the jury decided that, well, he was guilty, but he didn't need the death penalty. So. Uh, her testimony saved her dad's life. Well, several years go by, and she has children of her own, and one of her children has a um, a mental disability, uh, bipolar uh, disorder, and she's concerned. She wants to get treatment for her her child, and so she asks her dad, who's serving a life sentence for being a serial arsonist and is a black job. Uh, if he'd ever been diagnosed as being bipolar or if he knew anything about, you know, family history of mental disorder, uh, was there any way that he could help her sort of um, understand her daughter's condition? And he said, no, I'm not helping you. I'm not. I'm, there's nothing wrong with me. And how dare you even ask me that? Wow. So she, so she gets to thinking, now, why would my dad be like that? I mean, I just want to help my daughter. So she asked him again, and again he says, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm here by accident. I didn't do any of this. I'm trying to fight my way out. And for you to dare imply that I have some kind of mental disorder, uh, I'm cutting you off. Oh, geez. Thanks, Dad. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess if your dad's going to cut you off, hopefully he's in prison for life. (laughs) Yes, you're not getting near me now. (laughs) Right. So so she starts reexamining, you know, that sort of foundational belief that she had in her dad's innocence and um, decided that she would, you know, open up her diaries and go back and examine her life and, and do another look at her dad's life. And she had all of his files, like every piece of paper that he generated in court, including his notes, you know, like the notes that, you, that the prisoners take, you'll see him do it on a yellow legal pad. Yeah. Um, all of his fire investigation files, all of the articles that he had written for trade publications. Um, we had 55 or 60,000 separate documents um, to be able to tell the story. And 
the best thing is though is that I went to John John Orr the, the guy that we're writing about and I said hey um, listen I'm writing a book uh, about you and your career and I'm working with your daughter and, and she writes him and says dad this is not going to be a good book this is going to make you look bad um, I, I said I, I hope that you'll you know at least co- cooperate with me and he agreed to um, so we had a lot of correspondence, a lot of telephone calls, a lot of back and forth. He shared his unpublished uh, autobiography with me. Um, and he, I think he was hoping that he would emerge from this as some sort of a Stephen Avery type of character um, who, you know, had been wrongfully accused and wrongfully convicted because he was so smart. Um but the truth is, is that you know he he's not a Stephen Avery character. He's a, he's a guy who um, was uh, sexually aroused by fires um, and thought that it, that somehow he could you know have have his cake and eat it too, right? Be this really awesome fire investigator, but also be an arsonist. Um, who never got caught? I, 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 one thing about him, and the, the the thing that just like sends it into orbit, right? Like the the part of the story that okay, all this. Here's how he got caught. He wrote a book. He wanted to be Joseph Wambaugh. You know, Joe Wambaugh um, wrote about the cops because he was a cop and he knew the perspective of a cop, right? Mm-hmm. Well, nobody had ever written about firefighters from the perspective of a firefighter. It's just that he wrote about firefighters from the perspective of a firefighter and arsonists from his perspective of an arsonist. <laughs> and he, he gave up real details of a crime that he committed um, in such a way that it became the cross that he hung himself on. Wow, it shows how smart he was. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, Joe Wambaugh wrote about him, and... Um, his book is called Fire Lover, I think. It came out um, in the early part of the 2000s. And, it, it, you know, it's a pretty good book. Um, I, mine's way better. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, I'm sure it is. But, uh, because I don't think that, I don't think Wamba really grasped the, the parallel between himself and, and John Orr. I, don't, I, don't think, I really don't think that he saw that, that John Orr was really trying to be him. Um, well, he was, too, he was too close, don't you think? Yeah, yeah I, th- I, th- I think so. I think he was too close. Um, but, uh, you know, Joe, Joe Wambaugh's book, is, is it's a, it, uh, it kind of became a movie with Ray Liotta. I can't think of what the movie's called right now. It might be Points of Origin, um, which is a pretty good movie. But um, when you get to the actual details of this story, there's so much, like, it's like stuff like the, I mean this guy was a, a serial philanderer he um, you know in the course of his you know 20 year fire career I think he was married five times um, but you know during each of those five marriages he had you know dozens of girlfriends and here's here's something the fire department kind of suspected that he might have been an arsonist but they were worried about how they could, you know, go after him because 
there was a huge group of firemen and police officers uh, from around Los Angeles who were involved in a, uh, I, I guess, a sex club, right? So, um, uh, like a wife swapping thing, or a, uh, they'd, they'd have so there'd be you know um, hundreds of firefighters at these monthly orgies. Uh, with their wives and girlfriends, and, and they didn't want to expose all of that. <laughs> do, do, they wear, do they wear their boots when they show up? Yeah. Uh, and I think they wear their suspenders, and, and uh, they, they typically the, the fire pole is involved in some way. Oh, <laughs> man. Yeah. Well, but I, but, but I, I don't doubt that that takes place in all professions, Frank. But I don't doubt that either, I'm, I, and I'm not impugning it. But, what I, but the thing is, is that the the reason it's relevant is because the authorities didn't want this to, you know, be brought out in a public trial that, hey, L.A. County or Glendale or whatever, you know, a significant number of your protectors uh, are, you know, when they're sleeping in the firehouse, probably aren't sleeping, right? I mean, I think that's the, that's really what it is, is that they, that there was some, that the authorities felt there was some risk of exposing some sordid nature of, you know, police or firework. Well, it's too bizarre. It's uh, there was a uh, uh, a fellow in Florida that I talked to, who was uh, sure that his his wife who was a raging alcoholic policewoman, was sure that she was having an affair uh, with this other police guy. Could never quite nail it down. Pardon the expression. Until he went on on. Uh, Google uh, Maps or whatever it is where you can see the streets and the photo of his house had the guy's van parked in his driveway. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Another stupid criminal. <laughs> you never know. You can, least, you can at least park down the street for God's sake. So, so Frank, uh, another stupid yes. criminal. In, in, in my view, most of them <clears throat> in, in many ways are. Uh, yeah. But how about on the other side of it, the brightest criminals that you've seen at work? I don't know. O.J. maybe. O.J., I mean, can you think about, okay, well, let's accept that he killed Nicole and Ron, right? But, you know, the way he was able to pivot out of, you know, this horrific crime scene and into an airplane and be in Chicago at the moment when, you know, it all comes to light. And then, you know, to have, be smart enough to get Johnny Cochran and take the narrative of, um, you know, O.J. Simpson, the the, uh, the football player uh, who sort of broke down all these racial barriers and bring him back into the black community. Uh, and, and, I mean, it's, that would not have happened if there wasn't some operational brilliance on OJ's behalf, right? On OJ's part, he's yeah, but he had six or seven of the, be the best lawyers in the business. That, you know, wasn't yeah, it? but you, but you got to. I mean, the thing is, right? It's, you you want to say it's the lawyers, and I agree with that. But you know, at some point in time, he had to choose the lawyers and and you know and know which ones are going to be you know tell the story the way he wanted it told. Uh, and you know, and smart enough not to get on the stand, right? Smart enough to write a book that said, "If I did." It. Well, let's not go with a, a real smart about doing that, by the way. <laughs> um, you know, which was a terrible, ridiculous book. Um, yes. 
uh, you know, right. and, and he, he was smart enough to have people close enough to him that said, you go to Johnny Cochran. And and uh, th that's how that happened. You know, I don't think he, yeah. he didn't run with Johnny Cochran. His, his no, I mean, he had Bob Shapiro and he had Howard, uh, Howard uh, oh gosh, what was it? Wasserman? No, uh, no, 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 no. I was just thinking of the Wassermans. Um, you know uh, what? I mean, but he, you know, he had a he had a, a coterie of uh, of attorneys, right? Yeah. And but he knew. The thing is, it's like he, he could have said, "No, I just want one. I just want Bob Shapiro," or "No, I just want uh, Bobby Kardashian." But he, you know, but I mean, he's smart enough to know, like, "Hey, all right, we're going to have." You know, I'm going to let you guys manage this case and bring this best, smartest, Barry Sheck, innocence project people into it, right? Um, yeah, so uh, that's my, I guess that's my answer because I've never truthfully, um, you know, seen uh, a criminal as smart or as manipulative as OJ was. I mean, most of them are like, you know, the book that Burl and I wrote about the lady that poisoned her husband. Right. Um, you know, she thought she was in, in, incredibly smart, uh, An Angie uh, Rodriguez. And, uh, you know, she even thought she was so smart that she could tell the cops she was helping them solve the case. Yeah. She did. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. Hey, Frank. <laughs> right, she did, yeah. Frank, we, yeah. we are going to have to do it again. Uh, okay. And again and I again. I love being again, on again, this show. Okay, so get back, Jack. Thanks, Frank. Hey, Burl. One day, yeah. What's next? Magic Ben Allen and the Demons of Decadence Live, the Light of Lounge, right here on OutlawRadioLive.com. Everybody's got a thing 